It's to give notice, advice, or caution of danger, impending evil, possible harm, or anything else unfavorable. We know that life is filled with warnings, and they come in all different forms. Sometimes warnings are useless. I saw this sign. It said, caution. This sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. And that was it. That was the whole purpose of that sign. Sometimes warnings can be confusing, like this one, the actual sign. It said, warning, articles of value should not be left on seats whilst receiving Holy Communion. Do you really need that? I mean, you're in church. You, I mean, is someone actually going to take your stuff while you're... I mean, all you really have to do is watch who goes through the line twice, right? And that's the guilty guy. You know, you don't need that sign. Sometimes warnings can be sarcastic, like this one. There was a sign that said, warning, this area is not a litter box for humans. Please find another toilet or you will be arrested. A little sarcasm there, you know. But we understand uh, warnings. And most times they're helpful to us. Sometimes there are consequences when a warning goes unheeded. Uh, we appreciate the little lights on our dashboard that tell us if we're running low on oil or low on fuel because they're warning us that we might not get where we're going. We appreciate when uh, we come to a railroad crossing and there is a gate or flashing lights that warned us that there's a train coming so that we are not uh, killed by that train. Um, and those warnings to us are very helpful. And so we, we need warnings in life. And thus we turn this morning to uh, the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation really only serves one purpose. And that is to let us know what is going to happen at the end of the world. Now, imagine for a minute that you are the Apostle John. That's who wrote the book. It was given to him by Jesus to communicate to the churches the things that will take place in the end. But imagine that it came to you in the form of an email, modern technology to communicate an old message. And so you open up your inbox. That email would consist of basically three parts. And this is how you can uh, think of the book of Revelation in your mind. Number one, a cover letter. Chapter one, it is the author and the addressee, and then a little bit about the author. That's what we get in chapter one. It's basically a cover page for the book. Chapters 2 and 3, if you'll notice that if you have a red letter Bible, all of the letters are in red, meaning that they're all spoken by Jesus himself. So that portion of Revelation is what would be the personal message that's typed into the body part of that email, where he basically briefs you on what he's sending you and why. Then the third part of that email would be chapters 4 through the end of the book, and that would be the attachment. It's the attached file where he gives to you the briefing or the information of all that's going to happen during the last seven years of human history when God pours out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. And so you would get that email and you would be expecting the file and so you, like me, would probably skip the cover letter and the, uh, you know, the, um, the, the personal message because you don't have time and you would go right to the file. And you would read Revelation 4 all the way through the end of the book, and you would see the things that are coming upon the earth. And by the time you get to the end of that, your heart would be beating so fast, and your eyes would be so wide, that you would say, oh my goodness, how do I apply this? What do I do with this information? Then you would go back, and you would read that personal message. Chapters 2 and 3, what does the Lord have to say to you and me, the church, by way of warning, application, personal information in the context of everything that is in that file. And that's what we have in these two chapters. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation 
consist of seven letters to seven churches that literally existed in John's day, but that represent in our day the broad swath of Christendom. In other words, when Jesus right now looks over any congregation like this one, he doesn't just see, oh, you're like the church in Ephesus, or you're like the church in Smyrna. He sees individuals. And so as he looks over this congregation, he sees people here today that fall under the banner of each of these in their proper context. And so our purpose this morning is not to develop each church and look at the culture and everything that surrounded them historically, but rather it's to hear the heart of the Lord as it relates to us who are living in these most incredibly uh, significant days prophetically and to hear the warnings that he has. And so this morning we look at seven letters to seven churches and then seven warnings that are attached to those letters that apply to us today. Now, when the Lord looks at um, a a church, he doesn't see a a congregation. He always sees individuals. And when he looks at individuals, he never sees the outward. He doesn't look at, like, how we're dressed or if we brought our Bible or if we're, you know, reading along or if we're paying attention. None of that is anything to him. The Bible says that he looks at the heart of the individual, past the surface and what's seen on the outside, and right into uh, the attitudes of why we're here and and where are we at towards him. That's what he's interested in. And so as we look at these warnings, we recognize that these things deal with the heart of the individual Christian. And So God has something he wants to say to every one of us here this morning. And every one of us here falls into one of these seven categories. There is no eighth category that you can say, well, you didn't mention me. Everyone falls under one of these. And so seven warnings. What does the Lord warn you and me to be on guard against as those that are alive in the last days? And thus we, uh, we, we see from these seven letters. First of all, the church in Ephesus, the first church that's addressed there in the first seven verses of chapter two. The church in Ephesus represents the Christian who is fully devoted to the things of God. They've been well-established in Christian truth, but they've forgotten why. The Christian life has become an it, and it ceased from being a who. And when Jesus looked at these people, he commended their work, their doctrine, what they were believing and teaching. He commended them for their perseverance and their focus on what they were called to do. He said that they were accurately teaching the right things. They were behaving the right way. There was balance in their life concerning what they were doing at home versus at church. They were careful to preserve the doctrine in the right way. And they had a proper view of man and God. And everything that you would observe when you look at the church of Ephesus is you would say that that's a healthy church. And those are healthy Christians. They're doing the things that are right. But there was one problem that Jesus had with them. And it left them in danger of having his presence removed from them. And that was this. Is that their doing was no longer motivated by his love for them or their love for him. This church, these people were accurately religious. And that's the most dangerous place to be. Because only someone who can see the heart of the individual can see if that's the the, the case. Nobody that knows a person on the outward can tell that. Only the Lord can see it. He saw that there was motion and there was good motion, but there was no longer emotion behind that motion. The things of God had become locked in their minds and shut out from their hearts. And so this is what it would look like. They would get up in the morning and they would read their Bible for 15 minutes and then pray for 15 minutes. 
They would put on their Christian t-shirt. They would listen to Christian radio on their way to work. They would then drink coffee at work in a mug that was branded with the poem Footprints. They would know the truth and they would refute what's false. They would go to church carrying a Bible case uh, packed with bulletins from previous week's services and a pen and a highlighter. They would serve on committees and in various ministries. But behind all of that that was going on, they were no longer driven by a desire to know him or a passion for who he is and a greater revelation of his love. The Lord did not save us so that we would have well-ordered lives and that we would serve him in some capacity uh, in the church. He saved us for a relationship with himself, that we might know him and that we might walk with him personally and intimately. And when our service or the things of God become the foundation for that relationship and not the other way around where the relationship is the foundation for the service or the things of God that we do in our life, then we grieve the Holy Spirit of God because he doesn't have his proper place within our lives. When God looks at a person, he always looks at the heart. That's what he's concerned with. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said of old, do not murder. That's outward. But he said, but I say unto you, if you are angry at a person in your heart, you've already murdered them in the, in the secret place. He sees the heart. He said, you've heard that it's been said of them of old, do not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look at a woman or a man and lust after them, you've already committed adultery in your heart. David was commended before the Lord, not because of the things that he did, but because God would look at his heart and say, he loves me with all of his heart. So God isn't interested in what we're doing on the outside and if that looks good to everybody else. But he's concerned with the condition of our heart presently. And when we turn to a place where the things of God become mechanical in our lives, we've changed from God being the goal of all that we are as Christians to God being the means for some other goal that we can somehow use him then to attain. And so the warning that Jesus gives through the church in Ephesus to you and I today is to beware of the danger of putting Christianity on autopilot. And if you've fallen into that place, he calls you to overcome that. He calls you to remember from where you've fallen, to then repent of being in that condition, and then redo the first works. Start over where you began and fall in love with the Lord again. The second warning that he gives us through the church in Smyrna, the second letter that he uh, writes to address that church there. And the, 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 the Smyrna church represents for us the Christian that is in a place of doubting their faith because they are suffering through complex trials and circumstances. Jesus commended this group of people as a group. There was no impending sin. Uh, he was generally pleased with them. But what he said to them was that they were about to face a season of difficulty in their lives that was so intense that they would feel as though uh, they were in a prison and that they would die there, is that there would be absolutely no way out. And what he asked them to do in light of that circumstance that was coming is he asked them to remain faithful to him even if it meant that they had to stay in that situation unto death or until the point that they died. That's what he asked uh, them to do. And so this is what it would look like for them. All of a sudden, they'd be living life. They'd be enjoying the Lord and his blessing in their lives. And then in the, in the matter of a day or over a, a couple of days, their world would get turned upside down. They would lose their job. Uh, they'd find out that there was unfaithfulness in a marriage. There would be a child diagnosed with something or perhaps arrested or any other circumstance or set of circumstances that would come into their lives where all of a sudden there's nowhere they can turn for help. 
There's no solution or way out of the present situation, and they feel completely and totally alone in it, whether they look up or down or front or back or left or right. It's just concrete walls everywhere. It feels like their prayers aren't being heard, and they're just in this this place of absolute isolation, and he says that you're going to end up there. There's this thing that God does. I don't know if he does it or if it's something that he just allows or if somewhere in there those two things mesh together or whatever, but it's not uncommon. Is that he will lead us, and, and there's not one of us that, that, that can get around this from time to time, into a circumstance or a set of things that is so heavy for us that, that we feel like it's going to kill us. And, and no matter how long we think about it, or no matter who we talk to, or how much scripture we read, or how many hours we spend in prayer, there's just no escape. And, and there's no solution. This, this is just beyond me, it's bigger than me, and, and there really is no help. And you go to a counselor and you think, well, I'm going to get, this is where I'm going to get my answer, but you go and you don't get your answer. And you think, I'm going to go to church, you go to church, but you don't get your answer. And you think, I'm just going to be patient and persevere, and you, you do that and it doesn't work. And you just are in this place where the walls are closing in and you feel stuck. And it happens to all of us. I've been there. But why does the Lord do that? I don't know, except for this. He puts us in a place like that so that we will only trust in him. And that he's our only option. Because if you're like me, then if there is an A, B, C to getting through or getting out of something, I'll do it. Right? If this is what I have to do to get through this, I'll do what I have to do to get through this. But God puts us in a place where there is no A, B, and C because he wants us to lean completely upon him. Not trusting in anything that we have ourselves. And then we find and we discover him to be something to us that no other person could ever be. He becomes ours rather than just a distant concept in some way. But here's the warning that Jesus gives to us through, through the message to this church. Beware of the temptation to lose heart or lose hope or abandon faith in God in the midst of painful and complex trials. It's interesting to me that as Jesus spoke to these people... The time limit for their trial was predetermined before it even started. He said, Satan will cast some of you into prison for 10 days. Before it even happened, he knew when it would start and when it would finish. And that's comforting for me to know and for you too. Is that whatever you face, whatever you're going through right now, God already sees the end of it and he's working out a purpose through it. So what's the solution if you find yourself in that place today where you find yourself perhaps doubting a little bit, saying, this isn't what I signed up for, God. Uh, why am I going through this and can I really trust you? Here's the solution. is to determine it in your mind that he is for you, that he is working it together for your good, and that he will not leave you there. But that your position is that if I have to die in this situation, then I'm going to die here. I'm not going to sin against God or get out of the situation in a way that is ungodly or that he's telling me that I'm not to do, but I'm going to trust him that he's going to bring me uh, through this whole thing. It's an interesting thing in the Christian life, but I found it to be true, is that the only way out of something that you don't want to be in, in this Christian life that we live, is to embrace the very thing that you're trying to get away from. And that's the only way I know to get out of it. And if you're here this morning and if you've in some way in your heart, nobody else even knows it, but you've turned your back in some way on God because of something that you're going through, uh, you know, I'll say this to you, is that if you could see all that God could see, and if you knew all that God knew, then you would do in your life the exact same thing that God does in your life because he promises that he's for you and not against you. But if you're in that place, he calls you to overcome that. He says you need to get past that. The third warning is given to us through the church in Pergamos, the third letter that Jesus wrote. 
And it represents for us the Christian who has allowed compromise to weaken their commitment to Christ. Jesus commended them that they were clinging to his name, that they hadn't denied him, and they hadn't renounced their faith. They were fully clinging to their uh, title of being Christians, and they were practicing everything that went along with it. His problem with them is that there were two areas of compromise in their life. Number one is that they had learned to use Christian principles to justify sinful behavior and disobedience. He calls it the doctrine of Balaam, and that's what Balaam did. He taught the children of Israel to sin in a biblical way. And that's what happens, and a lot of times people uh, will, will do that. And then the second area of compromise is that they separated Christians into classes in order to do the same. They separated between preacher and parishioner, between pastor and person. And they made these two levels in their mind and basically said, well, I'm only on the person or parishioner level and not on the preacher pastor level. And so therefore I'm not held to the same standard as they are. And so therefore the things that I allow in my life don't have to be really strict. I don't have to walk holy before the Lord. I can walk less holy. And so he calls them on it. And he said, you've, you've got these two things. You're justifying disobedience by calling it grace or saying that you have liberty, or maybe you read a book that a loving God would never send someone to hell and it's justified you and you no longer experience that battle inside. So this is what that looked like. They'd be living their Christian life and then the initial zeal of walking with the Lord wore off and an old temptation came up to the surface. And that happens, doesn't it? It happens to every one of us. And for a while, they would fight that temptation. They would say, no, I'm not going to go back down that road. I've been set free from it. But as the battle intensifies and the temptation increases in its intensity, you figure out a way. Your mind plays tricks on you. Your flesh subverts and takes control. And you figure out a way to maybe just indulge it just a little bit. I'm not getting drunk anymore. I'm just drinking from time to time. And if I happen to catch a buzz, you know, big deal. I'm not sleeping around anymore, but, you know, I've given myself back to lust again or a long look or maybe just a little flirting, but I'm not going to go back to where I was. It's a little bit of compromise. It's not open sin. It's just letting something in just a little bit. That's what compromise is. But here's the problem with compromise is that it's impossible for it to just stay compromise. Jesus said a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If you put a little bit of yeast into a, do, a, a bunch of dough and you try to keep it from spreading throughout the whole thing, you can't do it. Once it's been injected, it's going to eventually permeate throughout. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God set three restrictions or borders or uh, boundaries for a king when he would come into power. He said, do not multiply to yourself gold, horses, or wives. We see King Solomon the very beginning of his reign, one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had, but in the very beginning of his reign, he crossed all three of those lines. He made gold so abundant for himself that silver was counted as worthless. He had so many horses that there were 40,000 stalls where he kept them. And he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. He blew right through those boundaries that God had. There was compromise in his life. What's the outcome of it? He was a king. He had liberty. Who was going to come to Solomon and reproach him for the things that he was doing? He could do it and get away with it. And God didn't even take him off the throne. But at the end of his life, it says that his wives turned his heart away from the Lord his God. And when you read Ecclesiastes and see where he ended up, you realize that the liberty that he thought he had actually brought him into bondage. And that's what happens uh, to everyone who embraces compromise. See, once you blur the lines of right and wrong in one area of your life, it's almost impossible not to blur them in the others. And it's only a matter of time before your supposed liberty will bring you into bondage. <clears throat> the warning that Jesus gives 
through the, to this church is beware of allowing anything to get between you and me. The word that Jesus gave to this church that was in this state is that they had postured themselves in a place where Jesus viewed them as an enemy and he was ready to fight against them. If I'm the head of my household and I'm raising my kids, I love my kids uh, unconditionally and, and unequivocally. But if one of my kids brings something into their lives and into my house that compromises my relationship with them and endangers the other kids that are in my house, then I look at that thing as an absolute enemy because it's seeking to get between me and my kids. That's what compromise does. It's letting something into your life that gets between you and Lord. It was this, but now it's this. And eventually, it will be this. And if you're here this morning and you're in a place of compromise, Jesus calls you to overcome that. You've got to overcome it. And he'll give you the power to do it. The church in Thyatira, the fourth uh, that Jesus writes through, represents the Christian who has crossed the line from compromise and has now embraced open idolatry. They still name the name of Christ. They're still serving and working. They're still sacrificing and giving. We would look at them and we would say that they are not just hearers of the word, but they are doers of the word. They're hearing and doing. That's a sign of health for you and me. And we would look at them and say that. The problem was, is that they were living a double life. They were keeping their Christian identity, but there were whole areas where it wasn't even a fight anymore. They were just outright sinning. What might have been a struggle when it was just a compromise, now it's not even a fight anymore. What they did is this, is that they compartmentalized their God life into one area of their mind or their heart or their existence. But in other areas of the heart, they were living completely godless lives. So they would be going to church and still quoting scripture when they had to, but they'd be going out and getting high, getting drunk, looking at or reading porn, sleeping around, just no longer battling, just outright doing it and thinking that because man can't see it, God can't see it. And because man doesn't know, then God doesn't care. And they completely seared their conscience and it didn't even bother them. And the problem with that is that they were in danger of losing everything and even missing the rapture. It says it in the thing. Or even worse, it says that the face of the Lord toward them was anger and not favor. You don't want to be in that place. A loving God looks at you and he has anger in his eyes and not favor. And so the warning that Jesus gives is to beware of compartmentalizing God into one area of your life. Can you imagine if you allowed Jesus into your physical house? And then you made him the Lord of the house. You signed it over to him and you said, Lord, I'd be pleased that you take over and I'll just be a guest here. I'll be your guest. I'll live here in your house. But then after a while of letting him, you say, you know what, Lord, let's build a wall. And you stay on this side of the house and I'll stay on this side of the house. And then you keep moving him back until a point that you just shove him into a closet. And you say, God, you have this part and the rest is going to be mine. If you're living in idolatry this morning, and that's what that is, he calls you to repent and to overcome that. The fifth warning is given to us through the church in Sardis. Sardis represents the Christian who has learned how to live their life apart from dependence upon and intimacy with God. He addresses them as the one, he calls himself, the one who has the seven spirits of God. He acknowledges that they had a history with him, that they had known him. But he says that something's happened over the time since the beginning. And now you have a name as though you live, but now you're dead. Here's what happened is that they were Christians and they began running in the strength of that initial zeal that you get when you come to know the Lord, but they forgot to take God with them. And so they ran, they ran with it. And so as, as their spiritual strength waned, it was replaced by a fleshly strength. And Jesus' assessment was that they were spiritually dead. 
That can happen to us. I think we're in danger of that above many other of these things. And here's, here's why. Because a lot of times for us, life is pretty easy. I mean, yes, we have the, the, the grind of a job and a family, many of us, and uh, responsibilities and, you know, maintenance of things and upkeep. And, and that's normal life, but we kind of learn how to do that. We learn that, okay, I, this is my schedule. I go to work. I come home. I buy groceries. I empty the bank. Then I fill it again. You know, we, we all do that, and we kind of get used to doing that. And so what happens is we get into a point where we say, God is so good, I don't really need him. It's not that I don't want them. I just don't really need them. I've got, I've got it together. Things are working out. And so we're going along. But then what happens is that the terrain kind of changes. And things kind of get a little bit beyond our ability and our strength and our uh, resources. But we are so accustomed to just doing life ourselves that we don't call upon him and, and, and put him back in his proper place. You ever been riding a, a bike, maybe on the rail trail or a, a road bike or something, and you have it in high gear, like maybe a 10-speed and 10th gear, you know, higher gears than that, you know, and you're going along, and it's just you're sailing 25, 30 miles an hour, and you're, you know, pedaling, it looks like it's effortless, and you're just sailing, and it's awesome. And you're like, this is great. And then all of a sudden, you hit a little bit of an incline. And if you're like me, you start to feel it. There's like a little bit of a burn, but you say, I'm just going to push through. I like the momentum. I don't really want to change gears, so I'm just going to push. But then it gets a little steeper. And then you're like, okay, I'm still going to push. And you start standing up, and you're doing this kind of thing where you're like rocking the bike back and forth. you know. And now you're starting to sweat. Why not just change gears, right? But I go, no, I'm not changing gears. I like the gear that I'm in. I can do it. I can get through this. I think the Lord looks at us so often. And he sees us. We come to a point where we're straining under the weight of our own strength. And he says, just change gears. Every day that you wake up, there is a game of musical chairs that takes place within your heart. Galatians 5.17 says that if you are a child of God, there are two living entities within you. The Spirit of God, because you've been born again and God now lives inside. But you also still have the old man, you, that you have to deal with day by day. And the Bible says, Galatians 5.17, that those two things are contrary to each other. They don't like living in the same house. They fight over who's going to have control. And there's only one throne that exists within the chamber of your heart. Every morning, there's a game of musical chairs that happens. Music turns on. And the flesh, that's you. And the spirit, that's Christ, circle that throne. Who's going to sit on it today? And guess who operates the pause button on the radio? You. So every day that thing happens, they go around in circles, and you watch and you watch and you decide, who's going to have control today? Am I going to do this myself? Well, let me think about my schedule. I can handle that. I don't need it. I can do anything. I'm pretty good. I don't, I don't really need the Lord today. So go, boom, pause it, flesh on the throne. Jesus says, okay, I'm a gentleman. I'll stand back and I'll wait. And we go through that day and whatever and all else. Listen, you can get accustomed to doing that. And you can come to a place where you have lived so long depending upon yourself and not employing the things of God, that you almost find yourself lost. And that's what Jesus warns them can happen to them. He says that you'll live life guessing where you're going, assuming you're in his will, and you'll never discover God's plan for your life or his greater plan for the world. And though the warning that he gave them was this, if you don't live in close fellowship with me and with a surrendered heart, then you will be sideswiped by what is coming upon the world and you won't be ready for my return. And if you're living that way this morning where it's just all about you, you're, you're saved, you're a Christian, you've accepted Christ, but you don't let him have any place in you. He calls you to repent and to overcome that, to let the Holy Spirit of God have his place on the throne in your life. The church in Philadelphia represents for us the Christian who is doing well. They're not loveless, their motives are right, 
They may be suffering, and, but they're not doubting. There's no compromise. There's no idolatry openly. They're living in humble dependence upon God. He's leading their lives, and they're being used by him, and he's well pleased with them. And to this church, this group of people, Jesus gives a command and a promise. The promise is that you will be raptured prior to the tribulation or the coming judgment of God uh, upon the world. It's interesting that this is the only church that's given that promise. Out of all seven, it's only the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 10. Jesus says, because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of tribulation or temptation, which is coming upon the whole world to try them which dwell in the face of the earth. It's the only church that has that promise. And then he also gives them a command. And here's the command that he gives. Hold on to that. Hold on to that status. If you're doing well in the Lord this morning, and that describes your state, and there's nothing that God would put on your heart and say, this area is off, he says, stay there. The word that Jesus uses is the word hold fast. And it's a word that would be employed by those on a ship that were holding the ropes to keep the sail from being ripped away from their hands in the wind so that the ship could stay on course. And, and the idea is that there's a force that is seeking with everything it has to rip it out of their hands. But you would say, hold fast, hold fast. And that meant just stand your ground and hang in there and don't let it be ripped out of your hands so that the ship just goes off course and, and, and veers off somewhere else. And that's what Jesus says to those people is hold on. And so the warning for you and I, if we're in that place, is that if you are in a right place with God, stay there. And then the seventh warning is the final one, and it's probably the worst uh, of all, is to the church in Laodicea. And, and, and this church represents the person who thinks that they are a Christian and that they're saved just because they go to church. And Jesus has nothing good to say to this church. But the problem is that the people that go there have nothing bad to say about it. It says that they had money, so they could do whatever they wanted. They had goods. They had the best sanctuary, the best sound equipment, the best musicians and songs, lights, great seats. It says that they had need of nothing. They had a strong administration, good communicators, excellent quality behind what they did. They had huge attendance. They would come together for a board meeting and they'd say, well, what do we need to do? And the answer would be, we need to do nothing. We're doing so good. Our church is so healthy. We're on the cover of every church growth periodical. We're the envy and coveting force of everything in America and the world that every church just wishes that they could be us. That's how good we're doing. And so a person will find in their life that they don't really want the things of God, but they know that they need something, and so they're invited and they come to a church like this, and they go and they hear music that, they, that sounds just like what they hear in the world. They sit in a setting where it's emotionally soothing. They have their senses appealed to through the lighting and the atmosphere in the room. They hear a message that affirms them and lifts them up and tells them that they're doing great. They're never challenged about whether or not uh, the, the way that they live is right or wrong. And they're never told that they need to take up their cross, die to self, and repent of sin. They never hear about the crucified life, the narrow path, or the sacrifice for the name of Christ. And they leave that place emotionally touched, but essentially unchanged. But they'll go to work the next day or the next week. And they'll tell everyone there that they now go to church and they figure that in this context they don't mind being called a Christian because they aren't fanatic. And what that person does is that they add Jesus to their life hoping that he will then do something for them, but they don't give their lives to Jesus and fall broken before him. They've never fallen broken at the foot of the cross and owned the fact that they are wretched, lost sinners in need of a Savior and they even feel offended if they hear that from someone. So the warning that Jesus gives 
is this, to beware of assuming that just because you go to church and call yourself a Christian, that that makes you a Christian. The gate is still small, and the road is still narrow, and it's as straight as an arrow. This is the only church where Jesus is pictured as standing outside. He's not even in the lives of these people. They're assuming that he is, but he's not there. It's interesting to me that in um, chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, that's in the file, the tribulation. The apostle John sees a whole group of people that are in heaven wearing white robes. And he's asked the question, who are these? He says, I don't know. You tell me who they are. And he says, I'm going to tell you who they are. He says, these are they with white robes that have made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. But they come out of great tribulation. That's what he says to them. It's interesting that Jesus' counsel to the Laodiceans is buy of me white raiment. I believe that many of the people that get saved after the rapture takes place will be multitudes of people that sit in church week after week, just like we are right now, that assume they're saved because they're sitting there, but they've never really given their lives to Christ. And at that point, they'll realize, I've been playing with God, but I haven't given my life to God. The truth of the matter is this, is that in your life right now, Jesus is either Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. In verse 19 of chapter 3, the counsel that Jesus gives to them is this. He says, be zealous and repent. Do you know what zealous means? It means fanatic. He says, be a fanatic. Oh, it's okay, I'll go there because it means I don't have to be a fanatic. Jesus says, no, you be a fanatic. You sell out all for me, and he sold out all for us. So if you're in that place tonight, this is what, or this morning, this is what Jesus calls you to do. He calls you to overcome. And the way that you overcome if you're in this position is that you come over. That is, you recognize that you're not right in the sight of God. You listen to the quiet knocking of a loving God, and you respond. How do you do that? How do you become a Christian if you're not a Christian yet and you haven't trusted in him? You ask him, and you recognize that you need to do that. You say, God, I know I'm a sinner, and I believe that my sin has separated me from you. And life apart from you is frustrating, and life apart from you is empty. But I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son to die on a cross for my sins, and that he is the Savior, and that that is the salvation that pleases you and pleases heaven. And I believe that he died on that cross and was buried, and that he rose on the third day. And I put my trust for the forgiveness of sins and to begin a relationship with you and what he's done for me. And I turn from my sins in my own ways and I turn to you and I give my life to you today, God. And when a person does that, God's Holy Spirit will come into their life and they will begin the life that God has for them. And it's a good life and it's a blessed life. And he longs for you to do that, that he might reveal himself to you and he waits for you to. There has never been a period in human history like the days that we're living in right now. There is nothing but a thin veneer that's separating us today from the judgment of God that's coming upon the world. These warnings that are given to us through these seven letters have never been more relevant in any period of church history than they are today, not even in the day that they were given. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, says that the purpose of the book is to reveal unto his servants, that's us, the things which must quickly or shortly come to pass. And that word quickly means this. It means that once they begin, it will happen very, very quickly. And if you have a pulse and if you have one eye open this morning and you're watching anything that's going on in the world right now, then you are fully aware of the fact that things are happening very, very quickly. An immorality that used to take an entire generation to advance from one stage to the next is now happening every couple of months. 
We are at a point right now where we are waiting for the Lord uh, to come and we see it happening. Um, <clears throat> there is no one here this morning that doesn't fall into one of these categories. And if you're here this morning and God has, through one of these letters or one of these exhortations, put his finger on something in your life, uh, as we close in prayer and God knocks on your heart um, you know, and asks you to address one of these areas, don't make the mistake of resisting him or thinking that this message is for someone else. Part of our job as pastors is to see to it that you are ready for him when he returns. Paul said to the Ephesians, he said, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, that you'd be purified without spot or wrinkle and ready for him when he comes. And that's part of what we're doing. And so would you uh, pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you, Lord, that you're faithful to testify and to tell us the things that we need to hear. Lord, we know that you don't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we know, Lord, that when you warn us, you give us that warning because of our good. And so I ask, Father, this morning, as so great a congregation, Lord, your people gathered in your sight. Lord, I would pray this morning that you would win the war that's in hearts. Father, that where religion has just become a mode or a mechanical thing, but the heart has turned far from you, Lord, we pray that you would bring it back. Lord, for those here this morning that are going through those complex trials, Lord, we ask, Father, that they wouldn't lose heart and turn away from you, but that they would trust in you, Lord, even unto death. For those this morning, Lord, that are in compromise, that have allowed something to come between you and them, Lord, that you would put your finger upon it and that they would hate it, Lord, because it separates them from you. Lord, for those that have given over and just separated a whole area of their life that's so godless, I pray that today they'd set it on fire, Lord and that they would repent and turn it all back to you. Father, for those that are living in independence from you, not depending on your strength, but doing it themselves, Lord, that today they'd see the futility of pushing so hard, and that they would yield themselves again to the God who seeks and desires to carry them through. And Lord, for the one here today who's deceived, who thinks that because they go to church, or because they maybe pray to prayer, but never really open their heart to you, Lord, I pray that they would respond. And Lord, I ask right now that you would work in the hearts of those people. I know that during this whole time, Lord, little lights have been going off. Them recognizing that your word is true and that you're real. And I pray this morning that you would move them to say yes to you. That you would draw yours to yourself. And that they would believe and receive your gift of salvation. And so, Lord, hear our prayer as a congregation. As we seek, Lord, to be ready for your return. To be doing what's right and to be walking in your purpose for us. Lord, let it be so. So we ask these things before you this morning, Lord, knowing that you'll move in Jesus' name. Before I say amen, I want you to know that God has a place for you within his kingdom. The Bible says that he doesn't desire that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he has a purpose for your life. He didn't make you just as an accident or to be a part of something so generic. He made you specifically. But you can't begin to discover what that is until you open up your heart and invite Jesus to become the Lord of your life. God's not going to force you. That's a decision that you have to make yourself. And I'm convinced that there are some here this morning that you're genuinely seeking. You want answers and you're looking for truth and you want to know that life has value and worth. God has given you an invitation to be a part of his family, to not join a church or, uh, you know, be a part of something like that. But Jesus is clear this, that the devil has a desire for you as well. He says that he came to kill, to steal, and destroy But on the other side of that verse, he says that he has come, that he might give you life, and that he might give it to you in fullness, or the fullness of life. 
And I can testify to you this morning, as well as many people that are here, that the life that he gives is a full life. And it's a good life. And he's inviting you to be a part of that life. And you're not promised tomorrow. And even if you are, even if you live to be 90 years old, you're going to come to a point in your life where you look back on all of it and it's just the vapor of a memory. And everything that you've attained, everything that you have, is you're going to leave it to someone else. And you're going to die. And what is your 90 years then? But what he's inviting you into is eternal life. It's a life that has quality now and a life that never ends. God is knocking. For some of you, maybe he's even banging. But he's still not going to open the door on his own. That decision is up to you. If you want to do that this morning, the Bible says that this is the day of salvation. That now is the time. That when you hear his voice, don't harden your heart and resist, but open up to him. In just a moment, the musicians are going to begin to close in prayer. And when we start to sing, if you want to know Jesus intimately, personally, in your heart, not holding your hand, walking with you, but holding your heart, living in you, helping you think, helping you make decisions and live. If you want a relationship with God through his son, Jesus, we're going to start to sing. And once we do, leave your seat, walk to whatever aisle is closest, and come down here and gather right here in the front. When everyone comes together and we gather, I'll lead you in a prayer, and it'll sound something like this. God, I open my heart to you, and I invite you inside, and I ask you to forgive me of my sins, and I believe in your son Jesus and what he did for me on the cross, and I no longer want to live for myself, but I want to live for you. I want to be your son and your daughter. The Bible says that when you do that, God sees your heart, he hears your faith, and that he responds and that he will give you his Holy Spirit and he will start a work in your life and he'll secure your place in heaven. I've said enough.